Welcome to democracyonthemove.org, a podcast tribute to the people and organizations dedicated to reimagining our nation and bringing it back to its true democratic principles. This podcast episode was recorded on December 9, 2020. I'm Dan Schaefer, the producer of this podcast, and thank you for joining us. Ann Nelson joins us today to talk about her recently published book, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. The book is a compelling investigation of the network of fundamentalist organizations and oil barons who have carried out a 40-year mission to get control of our government. The men and women in this movement call their coalition the Council for National Policy, or CNP. The CNP coordinates the political activism of many member organizations, including the National Rifle Association, the Federalist Society, and the Family Research Council. The major players in this organization include Oliver North, Ed Meese, Kellyanne Conway, Ralph Reed, Tony Perkins, and the DeVos and Mercer families, to name but a few. These powerful individuals reach into the highest layers of our government. Anne Nelson is an award-winning book author and playwright who has written extensively about human rights and the defiance of totalitarian regimes. As a journalist, she covered the conflicts in El Salvador and Guatemala and won the Livingston Award for Best International Reporting from the Philippines. Since 2003, she has been teaching at Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs, where her classes and research explore how digital media can support the underserved populations of the world through public health, education, and culture. Ann Nelson, welcome to the program, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much. So I gave a very brief of, uh, outline of your book, and so I was, helping, I was hoping you could help fill out the details by giving, giving us a quick rundown of the origins of the CNP, that's the Council for National Policy, and perhaps we could start, say, 40 years ago, the year 1980, where Reagan wins the presidential election and starts to take the country into a new direction. Certainly. So, Dan, I've been thinking about this subject for most of my adult life in one way or another, because I grew up in Nebraska and, and Oklahoma, still have family there. And what I see as the roots of this movement is a cultural divide. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, the federal government took steps to integrate public schools. And there were interests among the fundamentalists uh, and, and some of the more celebrated fundamentalist preachers like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, where they felt that integrating schools was a bad idea. And they founded what they called Christian academies, um, which which were also known as segregation academies. And they enjoyed tax-free status because they were under the umbrella of the church. The, the IRS, the tax people, challenged that and said, you can't be tax-exempt if you're segregated. And so they really devised a long-term strategy to push back. Uh, and it has so many echoes with, with the language of the Confederacy, uh, not just segregation, but also the idea of states' rights and the idea of the federal government imposing its norms on, on unwilling citizens who have a different way of life in, in these states. Some of them are in the South, but some of them are not. Um, so in 1980, this group found that 
Ronald Reagan could be a kind of standard bearer for their movement to push back against the Democrats and the liberalization of the courts and the federal government. They formed the organization in 1981. And from the beginning, it had three components that moved it forward. One was the big money, which you mentioned, the DeVos family, as in Betsy DeVos. They come out of the Amway fortune in Michigan. There are also a lot of people who are involved with the fossil fuels industries and, and other extractive industries. The second component was people who were political strategists. And one of the early figures was Richard Vigory, who's still very active. He introduced uh, mass marketing to the political sphere uh, and direct mail. And now they platform that into uh, various digital and social media platforms. You had Paul Weirich, who was also uh, had this long-term vision of taking over institutions of the United States, not just government, but also mm -hmm. education and entertainment and, and business. The third component was media. And that's been quite significant and somewhat invisible to people who live on the coast. And we're talking about radio, which is still a very important medium in the United States, mm -hmm. as well as media companies had to have kind of sprung various tentacles in terms of social media platforms and, and other online uh, delivery systems. So mm -hmm. when you put them all together and coordinate them for political advertising campaigns, you get something that can can exercise a great deal of influence. Mm -hmm. And so, well, you, you hit upon on the, on the three big things here, but the, um, let's talk about their, their motivation a little bit more here. I mean, is it, and you mentioned um, uh, there's pushback of school integration and so on. So is it really just the, the shifting demographics of our country that's threatening a loss of power for the elite? And, uh, or is it an economic opportunity for those who have the most money or, Perhaps something different. I mean, what what uh, is it? Just um, uh, a demographic uh, pushback? Well, I I think that money is a huge component and perhaps the dominant component of this operation because um, what they're actually after is to mobilize churchgoers in in particular congregations to really proselytize them on, on very narrow political subjects mm -hmm. and then push them to the polls to first of all get them to vote if they've not been consistent voters and second of all to get them to, to vote Republican and third of all to discourage the voting of Democratic uh, voters. Mm -hmm. so, so it's been a very, very elaborate system and when you look at what they've actually driven home in terms of their goals, Okay, uh, the, the Trump tax bill, which concentrates an incredible amount of wealth in the top 1%, mm -hmm. uh, to the detriment of the bottom 50%, uh, that has been something that they wanted and they got and has benefited them hugely. The elimination of environmental regulations, which benefit corporations that carry out environmentally damaging practices. That's something else they wanted, Trump delivered. Uh, and methods of perpetuating their control through the process of making appointments to the federal courts. That's something else that they've driven home under Trump. They've gotten over 200 confirmations on the federal courts for judges who lean in their direction. And of course, that's going to be to their benefit in terms of political and economic interests. Yeah. 
Well, then, so they could not do what they're doing without the support of a massive number of people. You talked about voters before. And so um, this, I guess for me, this is the most difficult part to understand. I don't understand how ordinary people, you know, churchgoers, uh, people uh, living across the United States, how ordinary people could be talked into allowing things like their unions to be attacked or how they could allow you talked about the EPA, the environmental regulations, how they could allow environmental regulations to be rolled back, which ends up polluting their water, the water wells, their streams, the rivers, and the air that they breathe, causing untold health issues for many. So, I mean, it's to me, it's a it's a real good sales job, I guess. I mean, how on earth could ordinary citizens support this this organization? while their livelihoods and their health are under attack from the very industries that are funding this organization? So to address that question, you have to think about it structurally. One thing that is making me a little crazy right now is the conversation in the press and otherwise talking about Biden winning the election by a comfortable margin simply because that was the case in the popular vote. If you peel down the numbers, his margin of votes for winning the Electoral College was 45,000 votes in three states. Mm -hmm. And that's fewer than the population of my hometown of Stillwater, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. So it was an incredibly close election in terms of the Electoral College. And those are the rules we play under. And a lot of times the Democrats and the national press are very focused on the popular vote and not looking at the polling and the slicing and dicing of the votes in these crucial swing states. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't even have, I mean, the polling that, that, that took place uh, about these critical states going into the election was was off by, by quite a large factor. Yeah. So as a nation, first of all, we have this skewed system where there's very few votes in these states have disproportionate influence in the outcome. And yeah. second of all, we don't know these people as a nation. And this movement does. So what mm. they've done is gone to, they've created organizations such as one that has claims to have 70,000 pastors, including thousands of pastors in these swing states. These pastors are given iVoter guides, as they're called, and expected to distribute them in their church bulletins, okay? Printed mm-hmm. and folded into their church bulletins. And the way they formulate it is not to talk about is there going to be a toxic waste dump in your community? Mm-hmm. It's saying Democrats are not pro-life. Republicans are pro-life. Well, do you like life or do you not like life? Choose one, okay? Right. And they do this with their cherry-picked issues. One is abortion, and they have misled their populations on the subject of abortion grievously yeah. because what they have said over and over again is that Democrats support what they call abortion on demand up to the day of birth, yeah. implying yeah. that Democrats have a policy of a woman who's nine months pregnant walking into the clinic and saying, oops, I changed my mind, having a procedure carried out. Yeah. No, no, that is patently false. Right. But the other component of this picture is that in so many of these communities in the middle of the country, the local newspapers with professional journalists who've done serious reporting have folded, have disappeared, and you have counties, over a thousand counties in the United States that have no local news organization. So when they're blanketed with this misinformation, there really is not much else in these communities to counter it. Yeah. 
But so I I get that. I mean, it's 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 own the airwaves, own them, and we can talk about that shortly as as to how that was actually pulled off. But um, a more urgent question for me is um, this religious aspect. Uh, it, it, we've gone from basically love thy neighbor to love thy neighbor, but only if he meets certain puritanical and societal conditions. That that's kind of a stretch for me because um, I always thought I was uh, I, I was born Catholic and, and and somewhat indoctrinated in that religion for a while, and that was love thy neighbor was the big thing, right? I mean, as you talked about the the, the, the example that Jesus set, and yet um, you have this outright vilification going on. I mean, it's it's really sort of it's it's really hard for me to to square that circle <laughs> in my mind. And I guess it's just from the fact that they've been able to get a hold of like these 70,000 pastors and put them into their network, I guess. And, and maybe that uh, that's enough, huh? Well, and, and I've spent a lot of time immersed in their media, their radio and television programs, as well as their digital platforms. And all I can say is that their presentation of Christianity is different from what we learned in Sunday school. Mm-hmm. Um there, there are social scientists like Sam Perry and Andrew Whitehead. They have a, a, an excellent book called Taking America Back for God. And they really describe how a, a lot of these forms of Christianity have gone into areas of cultural identity. Mm-hmm. So if you think of people in, in certain cultural you know, areas of the United States, and, you know, you're in Missouri, you you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got the picture of, of a blonde, blue-eyed Jesus on the wall, and, um, you know, this, this notion that their form of Christianity has a direct line to God, and therefore they should be able to impose their values on everyone else. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, that was de facto how this country was. And it was this way when I was growing up in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I knew a couple of Catholics. I, 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 there was one Jewish classmate in my school, but I didn't even know he was Jewish because I didn't know what Jewish was. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was Oklahoma in the 60s. Um, well, it's different now. And you go to that same town and you've got Mexican immigrants, you've got Hindu professors, uh, you, you, you've got, uh, you know, this is a college town, you've got, you've got a lot of Muslim mm-hmm. uh, students studying, you know, geology. Right. Um, it's, it, and, and so if you're feeling that your cultural identity is losing ground and your status is eroding, it's going to make you defensive. Mm-hmm. And therefore, in these areas, there's all kinds of subterranean communications going on. Black Lives Matter is deeply threatening to these people. They don't want to call themselves racist, but they don't want to feel that their hold on society is 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 being eroded by these other groups. Mm-hmm. So there's this, and, and that has played into our elections. Because one thing that we found in the polling just in the November elections this time is that apparently the people who were being polled didn't really answer very concretely. Mm-hmm. So, again, you, you say, are you a racist? Hell no. Right. Uh, right. You're never going to admit it. Yeah. Vote for a candidate who's hostile to Black Lives Matter? Yeah. Right. But, yeah. but maybe I'm not going to tell the pollster that. Yeah. So we, we have a lot to unpack in our culture right now. 
Yeah. Well, that, that that's certainly interesting. And um, it, it, it brings me, I, I think in your book, you talked about um, one justification. I think you talked about uh, John Calvin, uh, the uh, 16th century French lawyer, I believe it was. And Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a quote written down here from your book. It says, according to Calvin, since God was all powerful, all history was foreordained. Salvation and damnation were predestined on an individual basis, and those lucky souls who were destined for heaven, known as the, quote, the elect, were also chosen to govern on earth. So I guess that brings to bear some sort of religious justification for feeling that way, I suppose. Yeah, and I think that, again, when you look at the tribal aspect of it, the way, you know, all of these definitions are a little loose, but the definition of evangelical tends to be people who believe they were born again, Mm -hmm. right? Born again in Christianity. And you already have this level of, I'm chosen, you're not, right? And, and this social cohesiveness. And you know, the United States historically has, has developed under this ethos of saying, uh, you can have whatever religion you want as long as it doesn't impinge on anyone else. So what they're doing now is really trying to impose their values state by state and, and doing so successfully, by the way. Yeah. Um, and rolling back this more secular and diverse vision of society that has been gaining ground since the 1960s, at least. Mm -hmm. Well, um, and I want to talk a little bit more about that, too. Um, You talked about how they're they're going state to state and winning um, hearts and minds, I guess you could say. Um, How did they gain such such, uh, power over the media? I mean— and, and how have they used this power to, well, I guess you kind of explain how they use the power to further their agenda, but I'm really curious as to, you just can't wake up one day and say, okay, I think I'm just going to, you know, start up a radio station or something. I mean, how do they, how do they gain this power over the, uh, over the media, particularly in the more rural areas? Well, by, by creating the media, they've mm-hmm. always had something of a hostile relationship to the mainstream media, much of which has its concentration on the coasts and in urban areas. So you go back actually, you know, to kind of the Elmer Gantry tent preachers era, and those preachers in these rural communities found that they could they could expand their footprints by having radio broadcasting. Mm-hmm. So then you have preachers like Billy James Hargis from Tulsa who found he could make massive amounts of money through his radio preaching. And mm. it's, it, it, it pains me because you kind of have, you know, widows and, 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 you know, people who are living in poverty sending their $5 into these preachers and being told that this will, you know, somehow make them rich. Uh, and this, this practice goes on. You expand it into Christian Broadcasting Network and Pat Robertson's operation, and as well as the Trinity Broadcasting Network. And then you multiply it across platforms because they produce feature films that are fundamentalist feature films. They produce Christian so-called music. Uh, they, they have all kinds of networked uh, digital platforms like PJ Media, like Red State, and then they've got a whole operation that manufactures memes that, mm, that go mm-hmm. viral. So 
you have people who are in these communities, the church is endorsing these positions, their local radio stations are pumping it out. And by the way, not everybody in the world listens to NPR. Not everybody likes NPR. Right. And mm. the centrists and professional news operations have basically backed away from radio. So again, they leave a vacuum that these people all too happily fill. Yeah. You have the decline of the local newspaper and before you know it, you've got the same messaging coordinated and coming at these people from all directions. Wow. I mean, it's it's in a in an absurd sort of way. That's very impressive how how you could do that in in a fairly short period of time. Um, let's talk a little bit about. Um, we mentioned the DeVos family before, and um, Betsy DeVos now becomes Secretary of Education under President Trump. Can you tell us how that is part of the overall plan for the Council for National Policy? Well, one of the I mean, one of the things that they want to do to secure their power is challenge the whole architecture of knowledge. And Paul Paul Weyrich laid this out in his memoranda and his speeches. Uh, you know, we want people to believe us, not their lion mm-hmm. eyes. So. Um, Public schools are a problem for them. Public schools teach things like evolution and science. And not only that, they emphasize the diversity of our country because your child is probably going to sit next to another kid from a different heritage, from a different Mm -hmm. religion and ethnicity. And that could challenge their belief system. And in fact, a good public school education is going to challenge your belief system and, Mm -hmm. and teach you critical thinking which is the last thing they want. So what Betsy DeVos did when she came in as education secretary would do everything she could to undermine public schools by uh, undermining the teachers' unions, uh, by pushing a voucher system, by, by trying to create opportunities for narrow religious schools and homeschooling, and basically deflect resources from the public school system, which badly needs it, and is really one of the foundations of our democracy, and into these areas where, oh, religious schools can teach creationism, homeschooling can teach whatever you want, mm-hmm. uh, and create these kids whose, whose mental formation has not been contaminated by an actual education. Yeah. How do they do in terms of actual uh, education? So, I mean, I read in your book that the graduation rates in some of these colleges is down around the 20 or 30 percent range. Um, it, that alone is, is a problem, but also in terms of academic excellence. Um, do these people, when they graduate from these uh, highly religious uh, schools, are they able to integrate into the workforce effectively, do you think? Well, it depends. There's a mm-hmm. whole battery of of schools and colleges that have religious affiliations mm-hmm. and they you know they include some of the best institutions in our country they also include small what they call bible colleges in rural areas that have very low academic standards yeah. uh, i can say that under the trump administration the graduates of places like liberty university and oral roberts university which are fundamentalist uh, colleges and universities have had great employment opportunities in Washington, and mm-hmm. they've been in char- put in charge of a lot of federal operations. 
Well, that kind of makes sense because they come, they're fully indoctrinated, indoctrinated at that point. So they get jobs working for the organizations that indoctrinated them, I guess. So that would yeah, make sense. And, and it creates a kind of shadow government that's been very uh, detrimental to the federal bureaucracy. You have public servants who have served in their positions faithfully and diligently. And all of a sudden you have these political appointees coming in and dismantling what they're doing. Yeah. Well, the Republican Party too. I mean, there's, is there even a place for moderates in the Republican Party anymore? Well, in in my book, Shadow Network, I show how the radical right has, has really mounted a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. And they've gone after moderate candidates and actually campaigned against them and financed their their opposition. You have people like Paul Teller, who has operated in Congress and on the Hill against moderates to try to marginalize and purge them. Mm -hmm. So that's that. And I I have some, some very esteemed friends who are lifelong Republicans and are older who are really brokenhearted because they felt that they had a party that they could belong to and they don't recognize this. I could probably count myself as one of them. I was a Republican many years ago and um, I don't recognize the party anymore. Well, I don't think that Dwight Eisenhower or even Richard Nixon would recognize it. You know, uh, this is this is a new crowd. And in the book, I trace this history and show where they go after moderate Republicans one by one. They hated John McCain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they they uh, and, and, and they have really used their money and very adept operations on a state level and a state house level to to mount this hostile takeover and you know one of my deepest wishes for this next period of history is to restore the republican party well that that brings me to my next question i'm i'm starting to think that you know looking at president trump do you think or i'm entertaining the possibility that that he could have been a mistake in some ways because his personality and actions are so outrageous and immoral, and it seems that he might just sabotage or undermine any sort of moral basis upon which much of the religious right derives their support. And so as a result, we've already seen a record voter turnout in the last election, and I can't help thinking that Trump inadvertently triggered and energized his opponents. Um, what are your thoughts about that? My thoughts are that... Um he was he was a stopgap measure for them, mm-hmm. and it's it's been a very transactional relationship. And again, the forty five thousand votes in the that that won the electoral college for Joe Biden is one manifestation of what's going on. But look at the number of Republican held state houses where state level law is made. Look at the over 200 appointments they've made to the federal courts. They've made massive gains under Trump. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that they feel wedded to him for the duration. Uh, Far from it. I I believe that they'll dump Trump whenever it suits them. But I don't I don't think there's much buyer's remorse in this operation. Wow. So uh, we're getting up to the end here, but I was going to ask you, what what can we, and the, the, the people outside this Council for National Policy Circle, what, what can we do to help 
undo what's been done over the past 40 plus years in, in, in the sense that, you know, there's been an intentional mobilization of American culture. What can we do about that at this point, do you think? Well, I think in the short term, um, trying to counter this radical right version of the Republican Party is important. Mm-hmm. If you look at their own words as spoken and published, they are seeking to to dismantle the federal government. That is their goal. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are really willing to use many <laughs> different approaches, some of them highly unethical. Uh, and to, to, to get more information on this, there's a documentary on Amazon Prime right now called People You May Know, which talks about how they exploit people with mental illnesses and, and try to draw them into church-based political activism uh, through, through manipulating data. Um, wow. So I think that, that they're going to continue to push this agenda until somebody stops them. And at the moment, the only people who can stop them are the Democrats. Yeah. Uh, I think in the longer term, investing in public education and and investing in local news media is, is incredibly important. Professional reporters who have the training and the objectivity just to report what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's a toxic waste dump in your community, figure out what's going on, what the dangers are, let the citizens decide and and take action. That's that's how democracy is supposed to operate. Right. Not through this this rhetorical mudslinging that that doesn't shed light on anything. Right. Um, and and unfortunately, Americans tend to think that you know they don't want to pay taxes, but there's a very high price to pay when you don't pay taxes and you don't have the public services that are affiliated with them. So right now, at the COVID tragedy. You know, we're moving towards 300,000 deaths, an unthinkable number. And if we had a functional national public health policy, it, would, it wouldn't be that many. It wouldn't be close to that many. Sometimes you have to pay taxes and you save money and lives in the long run. So it, 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 it takes a different way of, of thinking about about society and also you know dan going back to those roots you were talking about uh you know the sunday school roots love thy neighbor okay i think that means love all your neighbors right let's figure out how to talk to each other and how to take care of each other because ultimately even if you're you know (laughs) if you're selfish it's going to mean taking care of yourself yeah, it's uh, that, that's an interesting concept. I've uh, on a different podcast, I talked to a guy named Morris Pearl, who's the chairman for this place called the Patriotic Millionaires, and he had uh, it was an interesting approach. He said, he said, I'm greedy. He says, I want to remain rich. He said, but I realize that if society breaks down around me, my money's not going to be worth anything. So that's I don't right. I don't know if you heard of that organization or not, but it was a very interesting conversation I had with him. Mm-hmm. Oh, did you have something else? Oh, I was just going to say that you mentioned my work in El Salvador and Guatemala earlier. Mm-hmm. And you can see what the way of life is for people in these failed states. The wealthy people live in beautiful houses, but they have to surround themselves with armed guards. Their children go to school in, in 
uh, you know, armed vehicles. They have barbed wire around their, the walls yeah. of their homes. And, and ultimately, if you don't, if we as, as Americans don't look, figure out how to take care of one another, we all become hostage to the dysfunction. Yeah. It's a pretty good visual perspective you painted for me there. Um, so uh, final question here is, can we put a link to your book on our homepage here? I'd love to have people uh, look at your book and read it. That would be great. And you also might mention my Twitter feed, which is A Nelsona, A Nelson A. And I, I uh, post a lot of updates on the research. Okay. Definitely, definitely we'll be looking at that. We've been talking with Anne Nelson, author of the book Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. It's a fascinating book. I highly recommend it to anyone who looks at the craziness of our political system today and asks, how did we get into this mess? Anne, uh, thank you for joining us today and helping to enlighten our lives. Thanks so much, Dan. And I uh, just want to encourage all of your listeners to celebrate the existence of the COVID vaccines and to take advantage of them for themselves and their families. Absolutely. Good point. Thank you. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations dedicated to keeping the spirit of democracy alive. Please tune in each week where we will feature stories and topics that will keep you informed on our continuing march toward a more perfect union. If you have any suggestions for stories and or people you think we should cover at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through our website contact page at democracyonthemove.org contact or send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org. You can also comment on our Twitter page at All on the Move or you can comment on our Facebook page at Democracy on the Move. If you find today's podcast interesting and informative, please tell your friends and family about us. And if you would like to help sponsor the podcast at Democracy in the Move, please contact us through our website or email. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in to our next show.